Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, all. Just taking a quiet moment in the History Center before things open up. It's the Friday after Memorial Day. A lot of us spent the weekend with our families, eating good food and enjoying the outside. Well, the outside when there wasn't rain or weather warnings. As part of the collection here at the museum, we have the honor of caring for the stories of military veterans and their artifacts. Our job is literally to be the place where these things are remembered. Sometimes it's the uniform they wore or the canteen that they carried. Perhaps it's the letters that they sent to family members that were carefully saved and reread. But the things I love unearthing from the collection are definitely the oral histories. We've shared a few already on the podcast. Uh, look back and listen to Lyle Bradley, Dennis Berg, and Glenn Lindstrom. Definitely don't want to miss those. But I wanted to share another one in our Memorial Day episode. They're special because each recording captures the person's voice, personality, and service in a way that one artifact can never capture. So today I chose an oral history from Bruce Cameron. He served it during World War II. There was no digital copy of it when I chose it. It was, get this, on cassette tape. The horrors. <laughs> But don't worry, we have a tape layer, and I digitized it specially for this episode today. He sat down to share his memories in 1991. He was born in 1917 in South Dakota. His family had moved to Anoka by about 1930, and he graduated from Anoka High School. Eventually went on to work for Federal Cartridge, and then in 1942, George Bruce Cameron enlisted and served in an armored field artillery battalion. In his oral history, he talks about his time during World War II on what he called the extreme front line. Now let's travel back in time 31 years to hear from Bruce Cameron himself. A note for listeners, there is a transcript available on the show notes page at anocacountyhistory.org. This is September 25th, 1991. Terry Pree speaking for the Anoka Historical Society, interviewing Bruce Cameron. Uh, could you give us your full name, please? It's George Bruce Cameron. Uh, your birth date? June 1st, 1917. Where were you living when the war broke out? Anoka. At the time the war broke out, did you have any hobbies and were you working? I was working federal cartridge. We were mixing priming powder and uh, primaries for shells. Do you remember where you were on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor? We had been out the night before, and typical young people, we were a little bit late. So I know my dad told me that I could go upstairs and told me about it. Mm-hmm. Of course, the radio, that's all he had, was radio in there, that's all you heard. Did you volunteer or were you inducted? Well, there were some of us who were kept at federal cartridge. We couldn't enlist or volunteer. I don't remember how long a period that was. And then when that, we got enough people trained to go in those powder rooms. Then we, uh, I started to enlist. 
then all of a sudden my uh, draft moves come in. And so I'm listed as a draftee, but I was given, fortunately, I was given a cho my choice of service because I had already filled out the enlistment papers. I see. Okay. And so you went into what service? I went into armored division. Okay, so then uh, you were at Fort Benning, and then you went overseas? What's the Fort Benning? Then we went up to uh, Camp Standish, Massachusetts. From there we went overseas. And when did you go overseas? What year was that? We were in combat 19 months. We left there, Camp Standish to go overseas on D-Day, and then we, uh, we were the extra weight that broke out of the beachheads in Normandy. Mm -hmm. From there we spearheaded two, two pairs. We divided a division in three columns and we run the spearhead into Paris. Closed off Paris and the free French took Paris back. That was their request so we just blocked it off and they cleaned it out, cleaned out Paris. Mm -hmm. So you were at Normandy then? Yeah, we were the extra weight that broke out of the the Germans pretty well had them blockaded in there, and they put our division in. We were the extra weight in combat that broke, broke the seal. Through. Broke through, and the Union Armored Division, we just kept right on. They split us up in three columns, and we spearheaded across France two pairs. Mm, you learned that on the bubble. <laughs> oh, that was quite a bit later. Well, you saw combat then, plenty of it, right at Normandy right, yeah. right away then. Yeah, we saw it. Okay, uh, and then you went to Paris. Yeah, we said in the holding action from there. Uh -huh. I know we went north from there to some other town. That too, the town was cut off, the Germans were holding out, and there we were, our division, they had the town cut off, but they didn't have the strength to clear the Germans out of there, but our division came in and we did break the, the I guess we deadlocked there, and then from uh -huh. there we went across to Moselle, France, and we ended up, in, I think it was Moselle, France, from there we went north and got to Helped them get the American paratroopers out of, uh, they were cut off in, in, in Holland. From Holland we went to, uh, into the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, there was quite a few of those, I got a, I don't know what you call it, a break or not, but there was myself and I, there was five or seven other fellows. We had more mathematics than the average guy did, so a tank cannon can be used as an artillery piece. So we were taken out of the tank, back in what they called Fire Direction Center, and we figured the angles and the location to, to use that tank cannon as an artillery piece. So we were taken right off from the extreme front line back to, to that until they broke whatever, uh, like these blockades were never broke, then we went back into our tanks. I think there were seven of us in the advanced math that could do the fire, figure the mathematics for the Fire Direction Center. Oh, very interesting. Uh -huh. I can thank you. I took a lot of math in, in Noka High School and none of the ethics. I paid off. <laughs> when they tell the kids that they'll have some chance to use their math when they're grown up, I don't think this is one of the things they think about. <laughs> well, I figured. Uh, <laughs> but it certainly it came to you were sitting out there, you weren't quite as good a target sitting there. Right. <laughs> back at Fire Direction Center as you were that. Well, we used to refer to them as cast iron coffins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, are there any unusual incidents in any of these battles that you can remember that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, uh, just outside of Paris, uh, I remember we took the little town, I don't remember the name of the town, it's a suburb, and we uh, 
the people apparently, the French people were very happy to be liberated. I will never figure, forget this, we were kidding about it the other night. This French woman came out of her house and she was about as white as that, as, uh, she was high, but she had a big bottle in each hand. And uh, over there they take a drink out of the bottle first and give it to you because it's a habit. Uh, goes way back to medieval days where well, you poison a person. You give them a drink and there's poison in it. So that was a proof that it was clear record. Well, it turned out it was this, um, to call Calvados, it was clear, the strongest liquor I've ever tasted in my life. <laughs> I could feel my toenails curl up when I drank the darn stuff. That and uh, Battle of the Balls, my Niftry uh, uh, outfit, new green Niftry outfit, panicked to our right flank and left the Germans in behind us. And we managed to get our way out. Well, we lost our tank and we, most of us in our battalion, <coughs> I mean, our, uh, you know, in our tank, tank battalion, we, uh, I don't know how many tanks we lost, but we were on foot and we uh, worked our way back, we two or three days behind German lines, but we worked our way back to uh, American lines. <laughs> we, it was just daylight, we'd come out of the woods and somebody hollered a halt. All of us were wet, cold, hungry, and it was, I mean, that's where quite a few of us froze hands and feet. And uh, well, I've got trouble with the hands now from it. And feet too. <laughs> yeah, I remember. You froze your hands and feet then? Yeah. Oh. But thanks to a former baby doctor from Chicago, he saved the fingers and the feet for all of us. He seemed to know what he was doing, where some of the rest of them, all they talked about was amputating. He, he soaked our hands and feet in some kind of a foul-smelling solution and massage. And, oh, we still got the feet and the hands. Mm -hmm. Well, they bother me a lot, my hands. Both fingers and thumbs and both hands. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds numb now, but they're still there. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, when we got back in, we got some American lines. I remember somebody had halt and wouldn't know if we were the password, though, heck, we didn't have the password. We'd been behind the German lines. Uh, about that time, my buddy stumbled, and both of us fell, and I guess we used the typical American language, and you know, in those cases, one in GI, because only a GI can use that kind of language. <laughs> so I suppose a little bit more. That's what I heard us back to them. It long before we were back in the drew new tanks. We were back in the tanks again. So they got you back quite soon then? Uh, it was a matter of a couple, three days before we went back. I don't know where it was, and we were new tanks, and the crews were back. Mm -hmm. And we went from there. Well, again, we crossed the Rhine River. I didn't cross in the tank, because I was, again, I was in fire direction center. But then we went from there to different towns in Germany, and finally ended up sitting outside of Berlin, once the Russians cleaned Berlin out. And the one thing I remember there is this man caught up on a German, caught up on a motorcycle with a typical white flag, and he wanted to know if there was an officer for you. Because they wouldn't surrender to anybody except an officer. Very conscious rank. The darn driver of mine turned around and says, uh, well, they can surrender to you, Lieutenant. Well, I was no more lieutenant than the man of the moon. At that time, I was a sergeant. Well, I was discharged as a private first class. And uh, so he kind of stuck with the deal, and I turned it around, and next thing you know, I, this big armor, this big, uh, turned out to be a 12-cylinder deluxe car, and I don't remember his rank, he was way up there, he surrendered 1,500 men to a, a five-man tank crew. 
Wow. Uh, well, he was, he was educated. I found out afterward he was educated in uh, New York. He went home to visit his family in East Germany. And about the time Hitler closed him with the doors, you know, he was in the army or wasn't. He had taken military training as a kid. So he, using his words, he said, well, I uh, capitalized. I knew I was in the army, so I used my military training. He said, much better to be an officer was uh, carrying a rifle. And a uh, very interesting man to talk to. He uh, told his men to take up your guns and your all ammunition in that field. The vehicle's over there, and you go over there and pitch your tents and set up the kitchen there. He wanted to surrender his men to the Americans. He didn't want them at the mercy of the Russians. Mm -hmm. It was the closest I've ever come to seeing an enemy go up and almost kiss your shoes. <laughs> but it was quite interesting. You were very interesting to talk to. Him. And uh, then he came over and wanted to know if we, could, if we would eat, uh, if he could give us a meal that he knew there was just a five-man crew. Of course, there was a radio within a very short period of time. There were other tanks available. In fact, the whole battalion was available quickly. But his interest was to get his men away from the Russians. That's all. More than, more than cooperated. Mm -hmm. And he brought over in typical when he brought the meal over. I said, yeah, we can bring the meal over. We'd been eating these sea rations out of the cold tin cans. <laughs> After a while, you're a little tired of it, you because you're hungry. And to the, he had the, the man that carried the food over. Of course, see another guy come and he'd take a fork, take a sample of these things to prove that they were poisonous. That's a whole, that was a whole custom. I think it still is fairly custom over in Europe. Mm -hmm. But it kind of struck me as a, uh, one of those things you remember. Yeah, sure. And uh, the food was delicious. I don't know. <laughs> that was the first time I've ever eaten horse meat. Uh -huh. He told us afterward that it tastes never as good as beef. His beef. Uh -huh. It's kept us a little coarser grain, that's all. But as far as the food that were over there, their cook was, we sure put up a very good meal. Do you and remember any other incidents uh, connected with the battles or with your service that you'd like to tell us Well, about? I remember that when the darn war was declared, we were moving towards, we left Berlin, and we were going to, supposed to take, uh, Danish Peninsula, and that was held by uh, Hitler Youth mostly, SS troopers, so it looked like it was going to be a pretty rough deal. And we were moving at night, and all of a sudden lights come on all over, and first I knew this guy came up and hauled on the side of the tank. We stopped, and uh, <coughs> it was a German. The war is over. That's all he could say in English, and he had a great big bottle, <laughs> and he was pretty well loaded already. <laughs> He was happy with that, the war was over. <laughs> and uh, we got to, it was a chaotic mess the rest of that night. But everybody turned on the headlights on everything, and then we went on occupation duty for quite a while. But there was a lot of different points. The first tank we got hit was, was destroyed completely. Was, when they were taking Roselle, France, that was a fortified city. And our division went tried to take it, and we got thrown out. I mean, we really got thrown. In fact, our four or five crews, we, our vehicles got hit. And we uh, crawled up a ditch. It's one thing, from that day on, I've never had any respect for people with four junk in ditches. <laughs> because we crawled up that uh, ditch, the minute you'd raise a little bit, they'd machine gun over and have all the protectors. Uh -huh. And finally, uh, 
remember whether it was American or French Red Cross picked us up. There was a couple of boys with minor injuries, but three most of us were. The injuries we got was all scratched to head crawling out of that ditch. But uh, that was a mess, France. Leave. Our, our crew lost five tanks and their wounds came home. Wow, you were really fortunate. They were one of us been in the hospital at least once. Mm. Did we you did have one, one fellow was killed. He was a replacement. Uh, well, one of my gunners was in the hospital. I don't remember, he got hit and was in the hospital. And this fellow, he got, our tank got hit, the turret got hit. And he got two seconds or 20, 20 seconds to get out of the tank after he hit before they hit you again. And uh, well, he told the to band the vehicle, he didn't. Why, I don't even know. But he got, got hit the second time and killed him. He was a young fellow from Chicago. I can't remember his name. He hadn't been with us that long, but he didn't know him real well. But then my original gunner come back, and well, we ended up, uh, well, most of us came home together. So we were quite fortunate. Yes, I would say so. Um, did you win any medals? Oh, Purple Heart and <laughs> good, good conduct. And I guess there was... Well, it tells on here, but see, I can't read that. There were some awards given to us by <laughs> by the French and by uh, by Holland and Bel by Holland and Belgium was given to the division, but you had a right to That's a certain to get them, and I never was. And so some, I guess I did send for a couple of them, but they it was quite chaotic. I never did get them. But there was division. There was division awards for combating. I remember we were in occupation duty in uh, in Belgium. But we'd forgotten in the town. They were celebrating their first day of the liberation. We found out that the Belgians found out that we were, that our battalion was one of the divisions that liberated that town. So nothing we could do, but we had to be in their parade. And uh, they had a tremendous big banquet, and they had a, the whole town had to put in the fair after the, after the banquet. And all of a sudden, when we realized or not, we were. <coughs> I guess you would say the heroes were some of attraction, I thought. <laughs> but they sure had a tremendous food. I like Belgium and Holland. They were quite a bit like very, uh, even back then they were very much up to the American standards. Normandy was more like, uh, uh, like we Americans would be, continental France. Is, uh, to me, you're quite a few generations behind that. Mm -hmm. And when we were slated, originally we sat in Brussels in Belgium, so we were supposed to go in the invasion of Japan. Well, thanks to the boys who dropped the A-bomb, that ended that. Uh -huh. I wasn't looking forward to that because they figured then that the invasion casualty would be about 90 percent, is what they figured. Wow. We, we trained in Belgium for the invasion of Japan with amphibious tanks. And Thank goodness. Thank the good Lord we never had to use them. Mm. And the fact that you made no difference how many points you had, whether it was discharge or whatnot, they just, you needed armor division, we were declared essential drivers and tank commanders and gunners. Uh -huh. Of course, you had loaders and system drivers who picked them up in the place. So we, uh, we trained quite a bit in, in uh, the English Channel <coughs> and the invasion of Japan. <coughs> but uh, they said, 
We didn't have to do that on the deal. Our occasion there, our total at home was the discharge. Well, what would you say the hardest part of serving in the military was? Well, the, world, the hardest part was seeing the, the extreme number of infantry casualties. Those boys caught hell. Actually, we had, compared to what they caught, we had it easy. Because we had the, the only thing we had to worry about was the anti-tank gun and the artillery piece. As far as rifle and machine gun fire, if you were in your tank and uh, by, by your proper training, you were pretty well protected. Although, you tank commander, you had their hats at all. I mean, yeah, I got hit by a machine gun. It ricocheted across my fingers and red marked my arm when I was caught in my jacket. That's the closest thing to get me. And I couldn't figure out what the hell that thing was in my finger. It was bone. Did you feel your training was good? Absolutely. Your training is, uh, these kids that did, like I told some fellows, if you're trained, the more training you got, the better chance you got of coming home. And we saw a infantryman come in that were trained in, for example, we got a, an infantry officer assigned to us in France, I don't remember exactly where. He came right from, from the States here, and they were told not to get near the tanks and whatnot. And uh, we told the officers, after dark, you sleep under the tank because you throw what they call airburst artillery in. It's artillery that breaks in the air and just spread. It's like hail. And the casualty rate was high with those instruments were in the, in the uh, foxhole or what. There's no protection from that. Underneath the tank, they were protected from it. And we informed these officers, we're not going to move that tank because at night, the only protection we had was the instrument. The tank is damn near helpless at night. Now they've got lights that we didn't have. They've got a, uh, I forget what they call it, an infrared light that you don't really see, but gives gives the tank crew a chance to see it. I've read about it, but I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. That's something that's been developed since we got out. Mm -hmm. Well, what was the best part of serving in the military? Well, the day they did it, the war was over. <laughs> 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 yeah, we had them <laughs> Did you feel there were any advantages to serving in the military? Any good parts? Well, if it kept the American women and children from uh, have to go through what I saw women and children go through in Europe, yes, it was worth it. That alone would make it worth the time. Because when you see women and kids and children eating out of garbage cans and no clothes and whatnot, why? Well, I, I don't want to see our American women and children. So, how long were you in service altogether then, from 42 to? 45. 45. December 7th to 45. A little more than three years? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were 19 months straight of combat. And then what did you do immediately after you were discharged? Well, by your way, I came home, we had a month before we had to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So I took my month and I went back to the for a year I went back there. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your personal war story with us. <laughs> And you're an important part of our nation's history, and well, so the society is very grateful. Do. <laughs> do you have any final words you'd like to put on the tape? Anything else that occurs to you you'd like to tell us about? Well, uh, to the, if kids end up under drafting, uh, for God's sake, learn all you can while you're in the basic training, because that 
could be a difference whether you come home or whether you don't. Mm -hmm. The only as far as I see it, whether it's atomic warfare or like we had practically man to man, the training they give you it seems kind of asinine at the time, but it's just like you're working. Something you learned way back in grade school, all of a sudden comes to you and you can use it today. And uh, it's what I think these kids are not aware of. And I know there's some young people we know too that are, are going to be career military. I think they have a much better chance to come to combat back than the draftee that just doing what he absolutely has to. But if the draftee learns what he can, he's got a better chance of coming home. That's my opinion. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hi, my name is Diana Nurberg, and I'm an adult services librarian for Anoka County Library, here to offer some additional reading on World War II. First, we have Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The Twelve Days to the Attack by Steve Toomey. Named a Smithsonian Top History Book of 2016, this book details the days leading up to the surprise attack which catapulted the U.S. into World War II, though the book also highlights ways in which the attack could have been thwarted. Next, we have Whatever It Took, an American paratrooper's extraordinary memoir of escape, survival, and heroism in the last days of World War II by Henry Langrer. In this memoir focusing on D-Day, an event that ushered in the end of the war, a paratrooper recounts his own story where D-Day was just the beginning. He was eventually captured by the Nazis and sent to a camp until one day he decided to make a desperate escape, doing whatever it took to survive. Next, we have The Lost Eleven, the forgotten story of Black American soldiers brutally massacred in World War II by Denise George. After being tortured and executed by Nazi authorities rather than taken prisoner, these 11 soldiers were also omitted from the Congressional War Crimes Report of 1949 and ultimately from history. Finally, in 1994, a memorial was dedicated to the Wareth Eleven and all African-American soldiers who fought. Finally, we have The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Based on the book entitled Alan Turing, The Enigma, this film chronicles the formation of a group of scholars led by Turing, the mathematician credited with cracking the so-called unbreakable codes Germany was using during World War II. We hope you find these resources informative and enlightening. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Bruce passed away in 1999 and is buried at Forest Hill Cemetery right here in Anoka. But the pieces he left behind, like this oral history, keep his story and experiences alive. His full interview runs about 43 minutes. We weren't able to use it all for the episode. And it's available on the vault if you want to listen to it from home. Certainly, World War II has been written about a lot. A lot, a lot. We can look up facts about the company Bruce served in or the battles that they were involved in, but those facts don't capture his experiences. How he dealt with the frostbite on his hands or officially accepting the surrender of German soldiers at the end of the war. It makes you think... What are the stories of mine, of your own, that will be lost? There 
are even handy recording devices in your pockets, or in most of our pockets. Just throwing it out there. You don't even have to break out the tape recorder if you don't want to. Hope you all had a wonderful Memorial Day. We will continue to remember those who served and share their stories. See you all next time for an episode you definitely will not want to miss about the weirdest, some say creepiest, artifact in our collection. That's the hint. That's all you're getting. Make sure to tune in next time. Bye, y'all. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.